0: It's a, it's a powerful declaration that that song makes. I don't know if you guys have ever said the word Adonai out loud before, but if you sang the song with us, uh, that was probably your quota for the week at least right there. But it's a, it's a powerful reminder, church, because it's, it's something that Matthew introduced us to last week. If you're here, uh, thank you, first off, for braving the weather. If not, to fill you in, we started the book of Matthew. Because if you remember, when we left off at the end of Hebrews, we realized that there's this really big need to know who Jesus is. And if we are going to cling to him, and if we're going to find hope in him and eternal life in him, we have to know who Jesus is. And Matthew starts off last week by saying, really, two two big pictures that kind of carry throughout the whole book. That Jesus has the right to redeem us. He's our redeemer. And he has the right to reign over us. He's our King, our Redeemer, and our King. Now, when we talk about Jesus as King, we really have to understand what His kingship looks like. And Matthew kind of leads into this in, in chapter 2 because he knows you know, it, we all have different ideas. When I talk about a King, what is a King? I, I, I kind of think of the, the cartoons, some of you guys would probably remember the fractured fairy tales that were part of the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. See that's I'm familiar with old enough cartoons. Uh, we grew up with Boomerang. Uh, but they always had like goofy looking kings with like weird kind of accents and voices. It, they they were characters that you made fun of. They were not the heroes in the story. Other people have very different pictures of kings. You know, kind of the strong-willed, the iron fist. Jesus's kingship looks a little bit different. And Matthew when he talks about what it looks like that Jesus is king, this is again not something he's going to cover all of in one chapter. But he's going to kind of introduce to us this morning, what did it look like that Jesus is king? And we're going to see this, guys. Two pictures. A picture of Jesus as king, but then a picture of another king in chapter 2, the king Herod. And these guys are going to show us that Jesus came as a humble shepherd king to deliver God's people. That's the one picture. The other picture, he's not, not a prideful insider to control life. And I apologize because I really hate using words that we don't, we're not as familiar with. I don't know who uses the word insider in here. But I spent way too long on thesaurus.com this week just trying to find another word. And nothing really fits. An insider, guys, is simply just one who stirs stuff up. If you picture throwing the rock into a nice quiet pond. That's the insider. The insider is the one that chucks the rock in the middle of the pond and disrupts peace, disrupts rest. This is not who Jesus is. So let's let's see what this king, this king Jesus looks like here beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. It says now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Lord, I think you... You hear your people today. We love to claim your son as king. Father, it gives us great hope and great confidence to know that your son, Jesus, is reigning over our lives, Lord. To know that there's, there's nothing that comes against us, nothing that stands against us, that is greater than the king we have in Jesus. But Father, we confess to you this morning that we often read our ideas into what a king is and what a king should do, what a good ruler should do. We read that into your son, and then we wonder, God, where are you at different times? Why aren't you acting? Why are you allowing these things to happen as if your son was somehow losing his authority or as if it could be taken? Father, correct our hearts today for the picture that you give us of what it's like to reign and what it is to be king is very different than what we often expect, Lord. Humble us this morning to listen. And may we not just hear what it looked like that Jesus is king, Lord, but start to do that work in our hearts and our minds of saying, if that is the type of king that Jesus is, if that's who he was, if that's what he's after, Lord, then then change us. Change us to fit that image today. In your name we pray, amen. So Matthew, guys, he's gonna do this dance all throughout the book where he's gonna kind of tell you a a story or an account of something that jesus did he's going to give you a glimpse into jesus's life and then he's going to tell his audience hey remember this actually sounds like something you heard earlier in the old testament so you heard me a couple times read the phrase you know and it fulfilled what was written by the prophet or was what was written earlier matthew does this dance for his audience because he's trying to say this king that jesus is is Actually, the king God has always wanted you to have, you had bad examples of it in the law. The God has been after the same thing going back to the Old Testament, same idea of what it is to be king. And he starts this morning, guys, by showing us that Jesus is a humble shepherd king, not a prideful insider, a prideful stirrer-upper, if you will. In the first 12 verses, we see a story that we're probably more familiar with, right? The wise men and their visit to Jesus. And we focus on, typically in that story, the gifts and how they're going to seek Jesus. And they're offering up these gifts of worship and sacrifice, which is really important. Okay, I'm not not minimizing that. But we're told in verses 5 and 6, kind of the first picture of what it looks like that Jesus was king. The wise men and all these scribes and priests of the people, these are people quoting the Old Testament, knowing the Jewish law, they tell Herod, this is what the king, the Messiah, looks like. In verse 5 and 6, it says, For from you, O Bethlehem, shall come a ruler, okay, we're talking about a king, who will shepherd my people Israel. So, the very first thing we're told about King Jesus is that he's a shepherd of God's people. You think, really, what a shepherd did in the ancient world, guys? Two things guided into peace and guided into rest. That the shepherd was supposed to protect the flock, right? Warning them off from wolves, really, just making sure the flock was peaceful. But also making sure the flock was at rest, right? That wherever they were, they had enough room to graze, room to roam, room to do whatever the sheep needed to do that God had made them to do. Shepherds provided peace and rest. And that's exactly what we see all the way back at the beginning, right? When God creates, and on the seventh day, he blesses, right? Blessings in the Old Testament is it's a picture of being at rest and a picture of being at peace. God's saying, okay, we're good. We don't need anything more here. This this is perfect. So God shows his people from the very beginning, I have always been about leading my creation to peace and to rest. And here Matthew says that, that is the direction that King Jesus leads, leads into peace and rest, a shepherd. We're also told though that Jesus was going to be coming from Bethlehem. Now, I was trying to think of a good example of that this morning, but it, it you can't really do that without insulting someone's hometown. So I'll catch all of us this morning. It'd be like if you're trying to think of where a great uh the next great you know leader is going to come from, and you think of maybe uh you know big cultural centers, you would say, well, there's a lot of people there that probably are trained in leadership, probably know a lot about culture. Or then you say, well, and then there's, there's a smaller town over here in the middle of nowhere. And you think, well, where, you know, our minds instinctively say, well, the, the bigger area probably has a better shot at doing it. And that's, uh, that, that's not an insult. That's to say there's, it's amazing what God can do, right? God chooses someone from Bethlehem. One of the smaller, less influential towns and says, out of you, Bethlehem, I'm going to raise up my king. He's a shepherd, but he comes from some pretty humble roots. And that's also going to keep coming up in this story. And, and then, of course, you see Bethlehem, uh, that that wise men show up to this town. They find the king and they give these gifts. They worship, right? It didn't matter that when they showed up to find the king, he was a a baby, or at least three years old or less, depending on our reading of the story. He's a little child in a very small, very influent, very uninfluential town. Didn't mean that the wise men show up and said, oh wait, is this a kid? We're not going to give these gifts. The wise men see this humble shepherd king, and they say, Wow this is it. Let's give you our gold, our frankincense, our myrrh. They they worship and sacrifice this humble shepherd king. But we're introduced to another king in this story as well that also kind of shows us the king that God was choosing to work with, right? Herod is a name you may have heard. Herod shows up a couple different times. There's a couple different Herods that show up in the New Testament account. Herod was kind of like A title that got passed on from father to son along with the crown. Herod is a Greek word meaning heroic. So, on the one hand, you have a king who's described coming from a a smaller, less influential place, coming from humble origins, and then you have another king over here whose name literally means hero. Little bit, little bit different type of king here. And what is this? hero king doing when he finds out this news that God has raised up a king of the Jews. Verse 3, we're told he was troubled. Troubled comes from a Greek word that gives us the picture of what I said earlier, throwing a rock into the middle of a very calm, very clear pool. Troubled is the picture of someone who, when something threatens what they believe, or threatens what they're trying to do, they get agitated. And they get tense. They start in our, On our day today, they would start emailing all their friends saying, Look, look at what's going on over here. How, how dare this come up? What is this? We need to do something. Because Herod, not only is he troubled, we're told in verse 3, he gets all Jerusalem with him. That this guy gets so agitated and so nervous about what's going on, he stirs up an entire city around him. And not in a godly way. Sometimes we think about, hey, if we're the one that throws the stone into the pool, right? we can get good things going. That's not what Herod does. Herod stirs up everyone around him. It's, he is not leading into peace and rest. He's not leading from humility. Herod's going, wait a second. Last time I checked, I was the king. Last time I checked, I, I think all the rules and everything around here reflected me, something else is coming up. Oh no, oh no. This, this is the attitude we're seeing in Herod. Guys, two different kings introduced to us in our story. One of a humble shepherd whose aim is to lead into peace and rest. And another of a king who, out of feeling threatened, has so much pride in his position, in his standing, that he just starts stirring everything up. Stirring to worry stirring to fear, stirring to chaos. And I think, you know, we've, we've seen examples of this today. I think we've seen it in the church, but we've seen different leaders when situations happen, some good quality leaders guide people to peace, guide people to rest, the type of leaders who say, guys, this is not a big deal, we'll work with this, we'll respond to this, it's okay. Humble shepherd leading to peace and rest and then we've also seen pictures of leaders who when something comes up they say oh man oh man we got to rally the troops man we we got to rally the masses we got we got to do something it's it's a picture of just again disrupting that pool and i'm i'm sure you guys have even seen you know whether it was like a teacher in school that did that maybe it was a boss at work some of you guys have probably had bosses who are like this of, oh, no, man, something has come up at work. We got we to stop what we're doing and take care of this. It's, that's a tough working environment, isn't it? If, if your boss or your teacher, or I, I think about our kids at home as a parent, if there's someone over you that's always throwing a rock into the pool, it's hard to get stuff done. It's, it's hard to grow. It's Really, it's hard to flourish, I mean, for our kids, I've seen that if I respond out of worry or anger or chaos in the middle of a moment and I chuck the, the rock into the middle of their, their calm pool for the afternoon, you know, eventually I'll calm down, right? Like if you throw a rock into the middle of the pond, after that big splash, it, it gets calm pretty quick. But those ripples go far out. And the kids can be on edge the whole rest of the day. It can be the next day and they're still kind of tense even though I've I'm over it and I have been over it two different pictures of kings here in Matthew 2 one leads to peace and to rest the other stirs to chaos and in this picture of these two different kings Matthew takes great care to say not only are there two different types of kings they also have Two different goals, right? Why is Jesus trying to humbly shepherd people to peace and rest? Why is Herod looking to stir up to cause fear and worry and chaos? The rest of Matthew 2 shows us kind of what are they after. And really the big idea is that Jesus is leading people to deliverance. Right? The humble shepherd king, when he comes, he brings people to be right with God. He's the one that's able to pull people out of the anger, out of the chaos, out of the worry, because he's bringing them to peace and rest. Herod's the type of king who does something a little bit different. If you look at verses 13 through 15, in response to Herod literally hunting down Jesus... Okay? He says back at the beginning, oh yeah, wise men, come tell me where you find this king. I want to go worship him too." He has no intent. No intent of worshiping Jesus. He wants to put, put Christ to death. So God tells Joseph to move the family to Egypt. And Matthew notes this fulfills Hosea 11, 1, a prophecy that says out of Egypt, I called my son. And I kept thinking there's... There's a lot of cool parallels that start springing up in the second part of this chapter. Stuff that we have actually seen and studied before. You guys remember when we were reading through Exodus? I don't know if I touched on this, but if you've ever wondered, how did the people of Israel get to Egypt to begin with? Like, why did they need to be brought out of Egypt? The very end of Genesis shows us that there's a a great famine that comes up. You could say it's something that is threatening the peace and rest of God's people. So what God does is he moves Jacob and his family, all his sons, he moves them out of their land and he puts them in Egypt for a season. And God is now kind of doing the same thing again with Jesus. Matthew records these details, guys, and he says, Remember, you know this audience that knows the Jewish text, Remember, guys, God delivered his people. That what he did was he pulled them out of anger, pulled them out of worry, pulled them out of chaos so that he could deliver them to be with him. God did it and God's doing it again here. And Herod responds in verses 16 through 18. By now, Herod is showing all his cards, right? His response by being tricked by the wise men, by not knowing where this baby king is or this young child king. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger. Matthew notes this fulfills a prophecy from Jeremiah, but you guys, we went through Exodus, right? We've seen this before. This should immediately trigger us to say, oh yeah, Pharaoh did that. When, when Pharaoh saw that Israel was, was getting too big, Pharaoh was trying to control, take power, and so he started to put the babies to death. And so we have, again, one king who God says, because he is my humble shepherd, he will deliver my people. Over here we have another king who says, I'm going to take power. I'm going to make sure that I get myself in a position of control. And what ends up happening is life is literally being snuffed out. You could say death is the opposite of deliverance. Yes, those those are not the same thing. Two different kings two different goals. The last piece we see with this, kind of the, the same idea again, Matthew just really driving this home. Verses 19 through 23 here. Herod dies, and you think, okay, the wicked king is dead. That probably means they're able to go back. And we're told that God does tell Joseph, take the family, move back to Israel, and he goes to do this. But Joseph, in verse 22, he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, and he's afraid. And this, again... There's some weird stories that Matthew just puts in here. Sometimes we read past them. But Matthew notes the point of telling this story in verse 23. He says that Joseph kind of deviated on his travel plan. And he was warned in a dream to do this. So we could say that this is God at work. And he lives in Nazareth instead. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That he would be called a Nazarene. At different points as we've done in scripture. I like to tell you guys what people's names mean. Because names in the ancient world were a lot more uh, than typically we we give behind them today. The name Archelaus means prince of the people. So at this point, Matthew in giving us Herod's son tells us, look, Herod might be dead, but just just like when you throw the rock into the pond and those ripples keep going out, Archelaus is a prince of the people. He reflects what... Is going on in the city of Jerusalem. Matthew telling us even though Herod has died. Even though the wicked king is now gone. His influence, what he has stirred up is still there. Is still continuing. Even though Herod is gone. Those in Jerusalem are still in chaos. In anger, in worry over the threat of this new king who has come up. So Joseph is right to be afraid. Not to go back. And so he moves them not from Judea, but to Galilee, specifically to Nazareth. Nazareth is, again, guys, a lot like Bethlehem. Kind of an obscure town that there's, there's quotes of some of the disciples even saying, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like this is kind of going back to that humble origin story in there. Judea is the land of the kings. Judea means he shall be praised. That's where you would expect a leader To come from, but no. The the one who will be the king that God chooses in his son Jesus comes from Nazareth, meaning the guarded one. That as God has always guarded and delivered his people, so his Messiah is going to do it. Guys, two different pictures, two different kings are on display before us. I think it's amazing how Jesus didn't come like Herod. Jesus could have shown up. He had every right to have challenged Herod's authority and not just challenged church but won. right? Like if Jesus is the Son of God, if He's the rightful king, not only could he have gone to Herod and said, "You now have to bow down to me' He could have just swatted Herod aside. Like it, Jesus had every right, every tool at his disposal to have been that king. And yet, that is not the picture of the king we see. We are told this king is coming from some humble places. This is a king who, who reigns in humility. This is a king who's a shepherd. Whose goal is not asserting control, but leading to peace and leading To rest, this is the king that Jesus is. And I know that, yes, we we can very easily make the application. So if we are sitting under, if we're seeing in a leader, someone who looks more like Herod. right? Like a good leader does not chuck the rock into the middle of the pool. A good leader is not the one who who sees the problem and then immediately goes and gets everybody to try to be just as stirred up and angry and upset and everything as they are. That is not the king we see in Matthew 2. The king we see sees the same problems, sees the hurt of the people, sees the brokenness, and rather than showing up and taking charge, through humility, and through bringing people to peace and rest, they actually are able to deliver God's people instead of that trying to take power, which leads them to be put to death. And I, I was trying to think of how this makes sense for us today, and I realized there's a TV show that almost displays this perfectly. And it's one of the more longer-running TV shows, so I hope you guys have, have seen it um, And I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody, but I kind of have to. But who has ever seen Undercover Boss? Okay? That show is a near-perfect picture of this right here. Because, uh, you know, it's just to tell you, if you haven't seen the show, it's all about CEOs of companies wanting to know what's it really like in their company. Maybe they've heard rumblings that employees are not satisfied. Maybe they're just curious, maybe sales aren't there. For whatever reason, the CEO wants to know what's going on in their company. So they show up disguised as a a very entry-level, you know, the lowest level employee that you could start at. Uh, You know, like for the fast food chains, they they show the employee showing up and they're like, okay, I'm ready to do whatever. And and along the way they meet people that work in their stores, in their restaurants. Uh, usually they, they share some stories of how they connect with fellow lower-level employees who, man, they're, they're just beat down, and they're worn out, and they're struggling. They're like, this is their second or third job. They're trying to get through college. They're trying to send a kid through college. They've got a crazy housing situation that's about to explode. like They meet those, those co-workers with them. And then they usually also meet a couple of jerks which tend to be the, like the upper management or the middle management in the story, the, the bosses that come in, and they just, man, they're just keeping the worker down, if you will. And the, the episodes will unfold at the very end. There's a big reveal, and the CEO you know, takes off their disguise and explains who they are, which is, is kind of funny. It's not as big as you would expect because most people don't know what the CEO of their company looks like but they introduce themselves and they say, I'm, I'm so-and-so, I'm the CEO. And there's that moment for those who have been struggling, they're like, oh man, like what is about to happen? But then for the jerks, they're like, uh-oh, right? I've now been found out and I've been leading. We love those moments because there's, there's a lot of reconciliation and there's really, there's just justice. That happens. Because typically at the end, for that coworker who's been struggling with bills or struggling with a kid in college or something, the CEO does a big gesture to say, okay, I'm going to promote you. I'm going to give you a raise. I'm going to give you management training. Like they do something to help those who are struggling. But to that jerk, to that jerk manager, now discipline comes down. And some of our favorite episodes are ones where they just fire. They fire the jerk completely. And you're just like, I don't know if you get as excited as I do, but you're like, "Yes, that guy is getting what he deserved." But I, I find it, and this is, you know, this is where you start to maybe read more into the show than is there. But the, guys, that show is based on a huge assumption. If the CEO showed up on day one and introduced themselves as the CEO, how would the people in the store act? How would the people in the restaurant act? That jerk is going to be like, oh, everything's fine. I'm the best boss in the whole world. Right, guys? Tell them how good of a boss I am. And the employees, you know, yeah, he's, he's fine. It's like as a trainer, when I step onto the bus to do proficiency evaluation, people are the best drivers in the world. Like as soon as somebody is watching to evaluate them and they know that that's your job, people do perfection. And you know as soon as you step off that bus, everything goes back to normal. You, you know as soon as the CEO leaves that restaurant, nothing changes. The CEO does not show up with all their pomp, all their circumstance, all their power to kind of throw the rock in the pool and say, I've heard... That there are some things that are not good here. Let's see what we can do about this. They're not going to see the struggle. They're not going to see the effect of what's been going on. But what does the CEO do? They go, well, if I disguise myself in an entry-level position, not only will I see the problems with the management, I'm going to see the hurt of the people. I'm going to see the suffering that goes on. And when I see the real Picture of what's going on. Now I can do something about this. Guys, the parallels to Jesus should just be screaming to us today. That God did not send a king like Herod. Did not say, is, is somebody doing something down there to threaten my rule? Did not show up and say, hey, I'm God. Have you guys forgotten what my image looks like? Have you forgotten what my law is? Let's, let me fix this. Let's put all this back to the way I designed it. That's not how God shows up. He shows up in a baby as a child in the least influential places of his people from the lineages we saw last week full of people who in our our maybe legalistic minds should not have been part of the story. That is the king that shows up. And it is through that king not only does God just Fix a couple brokenness, God reconciles us from sin. God heals the hurt. God restores life. God fixes everything. Guys, I get, you'd be surprised, maybe you wouldn't be surprised. I get a lot of emails as a pastor from different groups across the state, across the nation, whenever something goes wrong. You can usually tie it to some something big just happened. Things about, got to rally the troops, got to get everyone together, got to go make a stand, got to go do something big in order to make sure reconciliation is still possible. And when I get those emails, my gut reaction is usually to delete them because this this is the heart of the messiah this is the heart of the king that god says not only is he the king who can fix things he's the king who fixes everything so i hope i hope as as we move to reflect on this this morning guys we, we don't need to chuck rocks into the pond in order to actually get something done. So I have a couple questions for us to reflect on this today. First question, I think, as important as we're seeing, this is the humble shepherd king who is able, infinitely able to deliver God's people. I think we should ask ourselves, are we humble? And I know that when we ask ourselves, are we humble, our answer is typically, yeah, we're pretty good, we're pretty humble some of you guys are the best at humility I've ever seen. Um, there you go. Moving on. Now, it's, it's difficult. That, that's kind of a big question to say, okay, am I really a humble person? So breaking it down a little bit more, let's, let's look at this instead. Look at where you lead other people in your life. And when I say that, you don't have to be in a position of leadership. Just look at the people closest to you in your house, okay? Because even if you're not like in a leadership position essentially, look at what is stirred up in the people around you, okay? Is it peace? Is it rest? Do I lead others into peace? Do I lead others into rest? Very simple. And I've had to come to this realization that if I'm looking around me and I don't feel peace and rest from the people around me at home, like if I just see Abigail really worried about something or the kid's just on edge, I have to stop and say, hmm, if everyone around me is in a season of chaos or in a moment where they're on edge, maybe I'm not leading into peace and I'm not leading into rest. Which then, rather than pointing at them, to saying, what's going on? Why can't you guys calm down? It makes me go, ooh, there's some pride somewhere in me that's bubbling up here. Because if I was leading in the image of a humble shepherd king, I would be leading others into peace and rest. And I love how Matthew, in these stories, guys, he shows this is not just like a, it's not like a theological experiment, right? That if we were humble, people would have peace and rest. Matthew says, this is literally what King Jesus Did. This is like we are 100% capable of doing this. So look at how we lead others. Do we lead them into peace? Do we lead them into rest? And then turn those questions inward. Do I lead myself into peace? Do I lead myself into rest? Do we have a hard time letting go of things so that we just keep stirring up in ourselves, like, man, I gotta do something? For me, that's one of the biggest challenges in leadership is there's, there's a feeling like we got to do something. If we're not doing something, we're not making progress. I can not even tell you what progress looks like. It's just if we're not doing something, we're not moving forward. And guys, that's not me leading myself into a place of rest. And then I look at you all and I say, ooh, then I'm not leading them into peace or rest either. Then I would not be leading as a humble shepherd king. Do I lead myself? Do I lead others into peace and rest? And guys, I think the last very simple question tied to this is where you're at today, do you feel peace and rest? For a second, don't worry so much about what you're leading other people to do, though that very much plays in. Do you feel peace? Do you feel rest? Because again, I know sometimes as a pastor when we talk about some of these more like theological things, rest, peace. You know, we go like, Jordan, that's just not possible on a day-to-day life. Church, it is. Matthew says, look, this is the king. Our king, Jesus, who we saw last week, who has the right to redeem us, who has the right to reign over us, he brings peace and he brings brings rest if we do not have them church then we are struggling to let jesus have his place in some part of our lives and so if there is a part of your life that you do not feel peace or you do not feel rest in it is a very real possibility that jesus does not have his place there and church that is not something that that i can fix for you that's not something that someone else can fix for you jesus The humble shepherd king who delivers us out of anger, delivers us out of fear, delivers us out of chaos. Church, he brings us peace and rest. And so maybe today we just have to start with saying, God, I need peace. I need rest. And I know whether this is the first time we're asking him this or whether we have called on his name a thousand times asking for this hear the encouragement that Matthew is trying to show a church that's really struggling people who just watched Jesus put to death heard him come back and then now he's gone they're watching the world around them not looking favorably upon them as we've talked about in Hebrews both the Jews and the Romans did not like the early church they are struggling to trust that God really does bring peace and rest in his king. And Matthew says, even from the day this king was born, pointing back to the day creation started, this has been what God accomplished in his king. So church, today, as we look to find our peace, as we look to find our rest in Jesus, knowing that it is at hand, let's pray. We say, God of all sovereignty, thy greatness is unsearchable. Thy name is most excellent, thy glory above the heavens. Ten thousand minister to thee, ten thousand times ten thousand stand before thee. In thy awful presence, Lord, we are less than nothing. We do not approach thee because we deserve thy notice, for we are sinners, Lord. Our necessities compel us, but thy promises encourage us. Our broken hearts inside us, Lord, they stir us up into anxiety, into fear, into worry. But thy mediator, thy son Jesus Christ, draws us. And thy acceptance of others, Lord, moves us. Look thou upon us and be merciful unto us. Convince us of the penalty and pollution of sin. Give us faith to believe and by faith to have life, Lord, in Jesus May we enter into his suffering. Let us see thy hand in the instruments of our grief, rejoicing that they are from thy overruling providence. Let not our weeping hinder sowing, nor our sorrow duty. While living in a world of change, let us seek the abiding city. Be with us to our journey's end, that we may glorify thee in death as in life. Lord, we bless thee for preservation, for supplies, for mercies, And to Thee, Keeper of Souls, we commit all we are and all we have. Father, may no evil befall us, no sickness come nigh us, no horror disturb us. May our conscience be clean, our hearts pure, our sleep sweet. And with the innumerable company who never slumber, we join in ascribing blessing, honor, glory, and power to the Lamb upon the throne forever and ever, Lord. Amen.